At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today's episode is what I consider a feel-good episode, going back into the world of medical education, medical schools, to show you that it's not all bad news. There are fantastic people in our country's medical schools who are doing amazing things, and there are amazing medical students who really are empathetic and want to experience a broad breath. And in my opinion, that's what academia is all about, getting people to expose different situations, different people, different lifestyles, different ways of doing things, and then having an open free debate about that. And medical school is no different. Please welcome to our show, Dr. Cliff Knight, the Assistant Dean of Clinical Affairs and Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Knight, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Now, aside from just being a total fanboy of what Marion University is doing, I'm going to let you just give our audience an idea of really what Marion University does, where it's located, because I think that's going to be very, very important as well. But what makes you guys stand out? What makes you a little bit different, like I said in my intro? Thanks, Chris. And I really did appreciate your um, your intro. And, and I do hope this is a feel-good episode. Uh, I certainly have been accused of being uh, pathologically optimistic at times, and I own that. Um, I, I believe there's a lot to be proud of and a lot to be hopeful for as we move into the future. Yeah, Marion University's College of Osteopathic Medicine opened our doors in 2013. So this fall will be our 10th year since we were founded. We're in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we are the second medical school in Indiana. Uh, there was only one medical school for about 100 years here uh, in Indiana. That's Indiana University School of Medicine, which is where I graduated from medical school. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, school. Uh, it's the largest medical school in the, in the country. Um, and so there was a lot of question about why does Indiana need a, a second medical school and, and why an osteopathic medical school? Uh, again, I'm an MD, not an osteopathic physician. I'm a family physician. And um, the osteopathic philosophy is really wonderful from the standpoint of the emphasis on a holistic approach, mind, body, and soul. Very consistent with my belief as a primary care physician in how healthcare should be provided and how physicians should approach their patients in that sustained relationship. And so um, our focus is to prepare osteopathic physicians to serve Indiana, especially in primary care and especially in underserved areas, including urban and rural underserved. And so that's our focus. We have approximately 162 medical students per year that matriculate into Marion. 
More than half are from Indiana. More than half go into primary care when they graduate and match in the residency. And so, again, we're very focused on serving the Indiana communities, especially underserved Indiana communities, and especially from a primary care standpoint. So that's a bit about us. So you mentioned your emphasis on primary care. You have 162 students in here, vast majority of them going into primary care. Give us a little insight into your admissions process and then really why you went out there and said, you know what, Marion University is going to plant our flag on family medicine and primary care. When we look back at, uh, at, at the time that the decision was made to start the medical school here, I think there's a recognition that there's just a shortage of primary care physicians in Indiana. And so at, at that point, I was with Community Health Network here in Indianapolis. And um, Community Health Network, along with Ascension St. Vincent, partnered with Marion University to start the medical school. And that partnership persists. Um, the majority of our students' rotations are at either Ascension St. Vincent or at Community Health Network. And again, so from day one, as our students matriculate in, we talk about the foundational impact of primary care on health outcomes. We talk about health care, but we also really emphasize health outcomes and truly improving the lives of individual patients, families, and communities. And we believe that a primary care foundation is critical to that. Um, and unfortunately, our healthcare system, a lot of times is upside down from that standpoint. And there's a lot more emphasis on rescue care, subspecialty care, which is important as well. However, it really begins with a strong foundation of primary care and the health promotion aspects of that. And why I'm just being such a fanboy here is obviously primary care, family medicine, an emphasis on that, and not just treating our primary care docs like gatekeepers and, and almost like a very expensive triage in order to go see a specialist up here. I mean, we've talked to you know residents and, and early career physicians and medical students where they say, I've had conversations with my professors and said, I want to go into primary care or internal med pediatrics, and their professors laugh at them and say, no, 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 no. XYZ University does not produce primary care physicians. And so there's this huge stigma out there. And I guess some of the more well-known medical schools out there, some of the older medical schools, if you will, that we don't produce primary care. That's for something else. Those are for the foreign trained doctors. That's for whatever it is. And then we do surgeries. We do subspecialties. We do the really high ticket items there. What's your reaction to that type of mentality? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, that is not uncommon. I graduated from medical school in 1987, so it's been a few years now. But even at that time, when I talked about wanting to go into family medicine, a lot of times I had folks trying to talk me out of that, that I was too smart or that it would be a waste for me to go into family medicine. And there's nothing further from the truth. Family medicine, primary care requires such a broad-based knowledge that I think that our best and brightest should be attracted into, into primary care. And you don't have to look far to see the financial incentives to incentivize folks to go into more subspecialized care for um, large academic health centers to be attracted to the research dollars that, that are generated in subspecialty care. Unfortunately, primary care is underfunded when you look at research grants. And so, you know, I mean, it's understandable but it's unfortunately just the wrong direction to put such, again, the, to invert the pyramid of where primary care should be the broad-based foundation and should be where folks are incentivized to, to go into primary care and, and focus on health promotion 
and balance that with rescue care. I, I'm not saying we don't need rescue care. We need a lot of rescue care. However, uh, we would need less rescue care if we did a better job with prevention and uh, and primary care. So I, I understand uh, that. And, and just a, a little bit more about my background. Just to- I was going to get there. I was going to get there because I, I think the audience at this point in time, what you just said, were like jumping up and down. They're like, Dr. Knight, it's direct primary care. It's membership. It's it's almost like this insurance-free model. It's staring us right in the face. You got to go there. So, Dr. Knight, how did you end up at Marion University? Because I want to do, I do want to talk about some of the cool things that you and I have discussed previously, kind of offline. But yeah, go there absolutely. Give give us an idea of of really what your background was and where you came from before you you got into academia. So when I finished uh, my family medicine residency, I, I practiced in Flora, Indiana, which is in Carroll County, a county of about twenty thousand population with no hospital in the county. And so, you know, from day one of my practice, I recognized that I I needed to be relationship-based, I needed to be comprehensive in the care that I provided, and I needed to have continuity. Those are the things that really attracted me into family medicine. I sort of enjoyed all of my different experiences in medical school and and thought about a lot of different specialties. But uh, when it came down to it, you know, family medicine was right for me because of that combination of continuity, comprehensiveness, um, and relationship basis. And unfortunately, so I finished residency in 1990, uh, again, a few years ago now. And that was before E&M codes. That was before the documentation burdens that are out there now. And, And so at that time, I had the luxury of really focusing more on the relationship and the continuity. And I believe that that's what a lot of times is missing in our health system writ large at at this point is that. So after uh, practicing in a rural area for a few years, I went back to the residency where I had trained and and I was faculty there, was residency program director, um, moved into some various leadership roles within the health system that I was part of. I was chief medical officer for an eight hospital health system and then had the opportunity to go to work at the American Academy of Family Physicians. And so in 2014, I started at the AAFP as the Senior Vice President for Education and was responsible there for our journals, our graduate medical education, continuing medical education, relationship with medical schools, and and really trying to um, help promote the importance of primary care and and family medicine. So I was uh, with the AAFP for about six and a half years in that role and then had the opportunity to move back home to Indianapolis to be closer to grandkids here and started at Marion then in uh, November of 2020. So just a little over two years ago that I had the opportunity to start in this role. And, And again, what attracted me to Marion is that focus on producing and developing physician leaders in primary care to serve Indiana. And so that's uh, that's a bit about my background and uh, happy to dive deeper into any of that that you think would be interesting. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting because what was really magnetic for me when I first talking was, you know, your familiarity with this model. I mean, you were working with leaders in the DPC industry for years to put on the DPC summits with the AAFP. What was it like working with some of those uh, big personalities out there in the early days of this? And are you, are you sitting there saying, God, these guys are nuts, but I mean, it's kind of cool. I don't know if this thing's going to happen. What was what was kind of the mood in the AAFP uh, boardroom, conference room when these ideas first started floating of a AAFP DPC summit? 
Well, I think from the very beginning, the tenets of direct primary care and that relationship-based and having the time with patients and really serving in that long-term continuity relationship resonated so well. Certainly a challenge to traditional conventional thinking about maximizing volumes and that sort of thing, but in such a refreshing way. And, and again, gets back to the real tenets of primary care and family medicine. And so, yeah, I, I think from the, the beginning, there was interest and support in helping those physicians who were looking to preserve those important aspects of the foundation of primary care. Now, Dr. Knight, we're going to pause for a quick minute, hear from our wonderful sponsor, as you guessed it, Freedom HealthWorks. If you are struggling to convert interested people into members of your direct care practice, or if you are struggling under your clinical workload, you are not alone. New services from Freedom HealthWorks, our enrollment desk to handle inbound sales calls, and our virtual clinical staff to handle back office duties for existing patients have been met with a huge demand nationwide. If you're interested in either service, contact Freedom HealthWorks at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com to chat with a team member or schedule a demo. Once again, we are talking to Dr. Cliff Knight, Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Assistant Dean of Clinical Affairs at Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Knight, we're just talking how you were with the AAFP and you're planning all these DPC summits and acronyms aside, you saw the value in really a return to the doctor-patient relationship that probably existed when you started practicing there and then just got chiseled away and chipped away as the decades progressed. One thing that really excites me, again, from Marion University, and, and I, I have in my notes here, correct me if this is wrong, but it's almost like you guys are positioned to be like the DPC university over here because you're, you're interested in getting your people exposure to membership models. You know, we've been talking about doing rotations and we've had a lot of physicians around Indianapolis raise their hand saying, yes, for the first time in 20, 30 years of my career, I have the time to actually take on a student, show them all the wonderful things about this particular model of medicine, really the business model of it, and when I have these conversations with some of the, 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 our clients and people we work with, it's just like their eyes light up. They're like, oh, my gosh, I've been wanting to do this for so long. I can finally do it. And I, I, first of all, I guess, do you see yourself as position? You know, Mary University could really take the baton and move forward and carry this, this membership medicine, this direct primary care message forward to future physicians? You know, I think it's important for our students to see physicians in various different clinical settings and, you know, look for those experiences that really resonate with them and their values and what they're trying to achieve in their career in medicine. And so I love the fact that we have those preceptors that our students can rotate with and see the various settings. Because, you know, I, I think the the truth is there's a lot of variety amongst physicians as far as what interests them, why they went into medical school, where they get their passion. And so we recognize not everybody is going to go into primary care. Not everybody's going to go into family medicine. And, and that's okay. We we need that, that wide variety. However, we believe the majority of physicians should be in primary care. And so we work hard to find excellent role models for our students to rotate with. The first two years of the curriculum is pretty much all classroom-based. 
We have some great simulation resources here, task trainers. So students get a lot of hands-on in a, a sort of an artificial simulated setting. And when they start their clinical years, the third and fourth years, it's really important for um, the physicians that they're with to be great professional role models, ethical role models focused on doing the right thing for patients. You know, for the majority of us in medicine, we had somebody that mentored us or somebody that we saw in practice that we wanted to emulate. And so if our students don't see those things, it's hard for them to picture themselves doing that. And so, yeah, so we, we love the, the opportunities for our students to get a variety of experiences, including in a direct primary care. I think it's wonderful. And even if it's not in you know, a DPC setting, but to have a student shadow somebody who is an independent business owner, independent practice, it's such a rarity these days. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the minority of, of physicians in, in practice now that um, that have an ownership stake in the, the practice that they're in. And again, it's not for everybody, you know, but we used to joke a little bit at the AAFP that, you know, how can you tell a DPC doc um, when you're in a meeting? And, and uh, you know, the answer was usually uh, that they're the ones that were smiling. So, you know, we, again, really recognize how that model can be so meaningful to feed into the passion of why someone went into medicine. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we want to help connect our, our students with things that are going to sustain them in a long and satisfying career. Do you see a lot of other or, or anticipate a lot of other medical schools out there following what I'm going to say your lead in this and continuing to expose our students as DPC continues to grow do you think the other medical schools would be like, hey, look, here's a great model over here for primary care. Let's get us some rotations, get some preceptors up and going. Or do you envision them just doing the same old thing that they've been doing moving forward? You know, I, I think there'll be a wide variety. And, and so I, I can't speak for medical schools, you know, broadly from that standpoint. You know, one of the things that I did when I was with the American Academy of Family Physicians was was really look at the strength of the family medicine and primary care departments uh, in medical schools ar- around the country. And, and we tried to help support those students at schools that maybe didn't have strong departments of family medicine. And we certainly you know, worked hard with other organizations in family medicine, the, or- the academic organizations in family medicine, to promote leadership skills development and furthering primary care in those large academic health centers where, again, a lot of times, unfortunately, there's not the areas of, of focus in those. So I think there's going to be a lot of variability, so much of it as where are the incentives? When the system incentivizes something, that's what a system gets. And so I would like to think that there are large academic organizations out there that want to see if there's some scalability with that model and that they can do that successfully. And so um, I hope that there's innovation out there around combining educational innovation with practice model innovation. But um, I I don't know how much appetite there is for that because I don't know what there's, unfortunately, the incentives out there for that. Right, right. And, and, you know, that's always a lot of the headwinds that we fight is like, oh, okay, you guys, you know, Freedom Health Works, you're doing the DPC, you know, you're building a community nationwide. It's still very much a niche thing. It's not widespread. Call us when you got thousands, right? And it's just like, man, we are just not there yet. We're pushing. 
we're pushing hard, you know, to bring that innovation and show that, hey, this is sticky. This is going to be around for a while. And, you know, it takes physicians in all different stages of their careers. One gap, you know, that I, I just don't have a good idea for right now. And anybody listening here is like, hey, Chris, medical school is a great thing, great, great, great place to get exposure to this model, but where we really lose people and they get sucked into the hospital systems is during residency. How would you, how would you, you know, handle residents if somebody came out and said, you know, I love my rotation as a pediatrician, or I love my rotation of primary care, whatever that was. And I love the independent practice aspect of it. But here I am at a residency for two years, working my tail off, getting paid next to nothing. They just gave me a big offer. What do students do in that situation? Do they actually go back and say, hey, hospital, no thanks. I'm going to go do this thing over here. Or do you see a lot of patterns when it comes to residency and and residency ending? I think that data would show us that the majority of physicians, when they finish primary care residency, are going into an employment situation, a lot of times with the organizations where they've trained because they're comfortable there. And if they had a good experience as a resident, I think that that makes sense when you look at the exposure they've had and, and that sort of thing. Again, the incentives there from a GME, from a graduate medical education standpoint, are uh, to keep your residents within your organization because you lose your GME funding if they go outside the walls of the organization for their clinical experiences. And so unfortunately, there isn't a, a lot of incentive for residents to rotate in independent offices um, because of the way that the, the financing is. And so, you know, that's just another example, unfortunately, of how the system incentivizes certain experiences and, and behaviors. Do you think we see residency reform or additional money, uh, maybe at private residency slots occurring, state-funded residency slots rather than CMS-funded residency slots? Has there been talk about that from any of your circles? I think that there's a great desire to find ways to expand residency training slots. There's a concern about a shortage of primary care. There have been many new medical schools that have come online over the last 10, 15 years. So uh, we certainly are graduating more physicians in the United States now. But unfortunately, the GME slots have not increased at the same proportion. And so we can graduate more physicians from medical school. But if we're not training more physicians in residency, the net isn't increasing. So uh, again, uh, I think that it would be beneficial if there were multiple funding sources for residency education. CMS continues to be the the big one. However, there are more opportunities now for some rural and teaching health center-based residency programs that aren't quite as tied in from that standpoint. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of privately funded GME slots. States can help incentivize by giving some grants and that sort of thing. But even those slots, a lot of times, ultimately rely on CMS funding. So yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of indication that there's going to be an expansion of non-CMS funded GME slots. And so then the, the question is, can those slots have a little more latitude to try some different approaches to education rather than the traditional hospital-based graduate medical education that we have. Right, right. I, I think it's a big need. There's bi- big bottlenecks and, oh my God, anywhere from four to 6,000 know, people graduate from medical school. 
and can't find a residency slot for whatever reason. I'm like, well, there's a there's your solution right there, guys. But you know what? There's some different different powers that be out there. Dr. Knight, last question for you. You know, we we have a, a pretty broad national audience. If everybody's listening here and wants to get involved as a preceptor, get involved in, I'm going to say their local medical school, wherever they are, what's the best way to go about doing that? And are medical schools going to be really open to people raising their hand and say, hey, I want to help? Yeah, I, I think there's two or three pathways. Um, the most direct is, yeah, just reach out to your local medical school. Most of them will have a clinical affairs division department, and uh, they're usually the ones that are taking care of all the logistics for scheduling their students on rotation. So reach out to your medical schools and get in contact with folks in clinical affairs. The other way to do it is is through your state healthcare organizations. And so, you know, we have a great relationship with Indiana State Medical Association, the Indiana Osteopathic Association, Indiana Academy of Family Physicians. And so often our preceptor's initial contact comes through one of those organizations. And then in Indiana, we have the Indiana Rural Health Association. Uh, we have our AHECs, the Area Health Education Consortiums. And in other ways, if you know a colleague who is serving as a preceptor, ask them who their contact is and they can help connect you. So uh, I encourage you, um, the greatest challenge that many medical schools have right now is finding enough preceptors and places for their students to get that clinical exposure. And so I encourage you to reach out and find ways to precept. And that really is, uh, the students need those mentors, they need those role models, and there's plenty of need for that. And just to weigh in on this, because you and I had this conversation when I asked you, well, Dr. Knight, we have very low volume practices, you know, high touch, you spend a lot of time with people. And I I loved your response, you know, when someone says, well, I'm a DPC, maybe I only have 200, 300 patients. I don't know if a student could actually benefit from being with me. What's your response to them? Well, our core rotations in the third year of medical school are really introductory rotations from the standpoint of seeing those specialties, those specialists in those areas uh, at work. And so we love to have students with our family medicine specialists who um, have time to then debrief the students after they've seen patients and explain what happened and, and give the students an opportunity to have some interactions with the patients. So the low volume practices personally don't concern me from the standpoint of if our students are seeing high quality care provided in a relationship-based setting, that's what residency's for. Residency is designed to give those learners the clinical volumes of seeing patients and becoming more efficient and those sorts of things. At the medical school level, what we're really looking for is the development of foundational skill sets of communication, ethical approach to patient care, focus on patient safety and quality, and again, the continuity that goes along with uh, with that. And, um, and so that's what we really want our students to see is the quality of interaction with patients. So patient count should not be a barrier to anybody listening out there who thinks, well, the student would be bored with me or anything like that. It's showing the emphasis on this is how you treat people under this type of a model or might be the perfect person because they actually have time to sit there and have a conversation about what just happened as well. Dr. Cliff Knight, Assistant Dean of Clinical Affairs, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Marion University. 
College of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Knight, thanks for spending time with us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.